Welcome to The A-List, the podcast that asks the world's top advertising professionals how they got started in the business. I'm Tom Chrisman, Chief Creative Officer at DeMassimo Goldstein, an inspiring action agency in New York City. Today, I get to talk to Michael Beirut, partner at Pentagram. He's the guy who designed the Hillary logo. He designed those uh, Saks Fifth Avenue bags you're carrying down the street right now while you're listening to this. He designed that Slack logo that's on your phone. He also has a great website called the Design Observer website, which you should check out because it's super chock full of uh, real knowledge. Speaking of knowledge, we talk a lot about the curse of knowledge and how uh, a little bit of knowledge can actually mess you up in life. We talk about uh, Massimo Vignelli, who um, great designer who everyone should know that Michael actually worked for for a while. So that was his job before Pentagram. He's just a really thoughtful guy, and, and I feel like uh, you'll learn a lot from this. So it's another in our design series, So, uh, but don't be scared if you're not a designer, because I'm not, and I learned a lot. But first, the A-List is brought to you by Ad House Advertising School. Advertising age called Ad House New York's newest, smallest, and arguably hippest ad school. Their philosophy, an ad class is only as relevant as the professional who teaches it. Ad House classes are taught by the best in the biz at the agencies where they work. You get 10 weeks of classes for just 600 bucks. That's a deal. To apply, go to adhousenyc.com. And for the latest news, follow AdHouseNYC on Facebook. So uh, now we're going to talk to the guy who uh, created every logo you've ever seen, Mr. Michael Beirut. Michael Beirut, welcome to the podcast. Hi, uh, thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So, uh, well, we always like to start with, uh, with where you were born and, and where you grew up and, and how you uh, came, came upon this, uh, this business of design and, and, and such. Um, I uh, grew up in suburban Cleveland uh, in Garfield Heights and later Parma, Ohio. These are both two uh, not particularly um, uh, <laughs> uh, star-studded uh, <laughs> suburbs of uh, – you know, an average Midwestern city. Yeah. Uh, went, to, went to public school, discovered I was uh, good at drawing when I was um, uh, pretty young, and I liked to do it. It was I was sort of nerdy and a little bit of a loner, and this was something that I could, uh, one, do all by myself, but that, two, other people found impressive because uh, right. I could do realistic drawing, and um, people who otherwise would have just dismissed me because I wasn't good at sports and wasn't really socially adept impressed by this like you know god-given quote-unquote skill i seem to have yeah uh and um uh what i like what i found i like doing actually more than just kind of going off by by myself and making up art ideas was you know someone would you know press me into service to do the poster for the school play or some banners for the homecoming or you know, um, a logo for someone's band. And I found that I really liked that. I liked the element of, um, of sort of giving, being given a specific challenge and right. actually having, oddly enough, something that I think a lot of creative people don't care for. I liked having someone else sort of judge my work, you know, sort of have to satisfy someone else before the job was done. You liked um, having I don't clients. know whether this yeah, I liked having clients even <laughs> then. And this is like elementary school and junior high school. That's funny. Um, you know, this was the 60s and early 70s, uh, obviously before the age of the Internet. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, when people 
operated basically in a state of constant more or less ignorance, or I certainly did. And so I, um, I had no idea whether this was, I assumed this, that there was no such profession, uh, you know, uh, as what I was doing. Uh, I just thought this was, um, some sort of, um, hobby that I had and I'd have to figure out some actual thing to do for a living. And then I was really fortunate to almost accidentally come across a book called, uh, uh, there's like a career guidance book in our high school library that I think had the title Aim High for a Career in Graphic Design slash Art by S. Neil Fujita. And um, I opened it up and it was just all filled with the kind of things that I really liked doing. It was posters for movies and plays. It was logos for companies. It was ads, things like that. And sort of, you know, in suburban Cleveland, uh, I had no idea. I didn't know anyone who did anything like that for a living. And suddenly... There was a book full of just that, and it had a name on the cover, and I could all of a sudden had some sense that I could do this for a living. Wow. So that was a huge revelation for you. How, yeah, how old so were it, you when, when you had that, uh, that happenstance happen? I would have been probably 14, 15 years old. Wow. Um, and so wh- what did you do right after that? Like, what was the... What was the next step in your? You, you, first of all, you'd given away all this work. <laughs> yeah, no, well, well, I actually continued doing that. Interestingly enough, because uh, the minute I found out that that was uh, what it was called, I asked uh, whether in my high school I could do an independent study course in graphic design, and I went to um, the. Uh, uh, I went down. It was, I went to sort of a school that was like half vocational. So half the kids who graduated didn't go to college. They just went right into some trade like uh, uh, um, auto you know, body or auto body. Yeah, really. Literally, yeah. we had. Uh, I had that as well. Studying. Yeah, yeah, auto body or uh, as mechanics or stuff like that. Yeah. A lot of people in my neighborhood worked on the line. Their their dads worked in the line at Ford. Mm-hmm. Their moms were housewives, and so it was. Uh, um, pretty common for people just to not go to college. And it so happened that at my school, we had a big print shop, kids studying to be printers, actually. Yeah. And so I went down and I said, I volunteered to do any artwork they needed for any project they were working on. I said, if you guys don't have to worry about that part, I'll do that part. You, you just kind of like tell me what, what it has to say and what you guys want to try out and I'll do it. So Wow. Um, I did that for like a year and a half, just like working with the guys in the print shop, actually. And that was like, that was a blast. And so I had this huge portfolio of terrible work by the right, time I graduated right, from sure. high school. Most of it's just like, you know, just really disgraceful <laughs> things. But, uh, but, I, but I was like a good mimic and I would sort of see some lettering style on an album cover and I would just do a whole poster just based on, you know, trying to copy the, the lettering on the front of a, of a, of a three dog night cover or something, you know? And yeah. so I, uh, I, I, hey, I developed a lot of bad habits, broke a lot of bad habits, but I sort of got a lot of things out of my system before yeah. I got to college. What, what, uh, when, where did you get sorry, that ahead. sort of personal, uh, agency thing that where you could be like, well, I'm going to go and ask if I can do an independent study and I'm going to go and talk to the printers down there. And a, a lot of, especially nerdy kids like myself, you don't have the interpersonal skills or the the courage to sort of imagine that different future. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, actually. Um, uh, I, I, a part of it is that I sort of was all, uh, that's an interesting question. I never quite thought of it that way. I also think that um, um, uh, some of the, you know, Part of my um, 
social ineptitude also in sort of perhaps usefully made it um, so like I kind of I, I, I sort of was uninhibited in other ways. Like I wouldn't know that that was something one wouldn't do. You know, right. why don't just, you know, what if I just went and asked, you know? So yeah. I think, uh, um, so, you know, I think I sort of like, I, I, the same thing that sort of like made me uh, um, kind of just, you know, tongue tied in front of girls made me just sort of, you know, I just would blurt out inappropriate things. And I guess that was just like one more inappropriate <laughs> thing. And I designed all these things. That, I don't know. But at any rate, I sort of like, I don't remember kind of like thinking that that was like, a, at the time, it didn't seem like a bold gesture. It sort of seemed like, uh, um, if anything, it seemed kind of self-indulgent, you know, right. You know, if I could find someone just, you know, I realized that I needed, it was weird actually, now that I think about it, because I sort of realized that I was setting my up for something, where, uh, setting myself up for something where I needed someone else to kind of like participate in what I was doing. You yeah. know, the kind of thing I need, I, I like doing, you couldn't do on your own. Yeah. And so I just thought, you know, uh, you guys just kind of keep telling me what you need and I'll just keep turning it around. So, yeah. And then you have to sort of solve those problems of like, well, I don't know how to do that. So yeah, now exactly, I have to yeah. figure it yeah. out. Um, that's a, that's a really great, uh, lesson and life lesson of, you know, like give yourself, uh, or make somebody else give you assignments. Um, yeah. And, and also I think another thing that I sort of carried with me a little bit was um, sort of not sort of having, having the nerve to kind of like say I, you'll, that I'll do something even if I don't know the right way to do it necessarily. Right. Cause that ends up being, you know, if you're trying to, um, uh, push yourself creatively, you know, the kind of things you're comfortable doing a lot of times are not really going to, uh, yield the most interesting results. It's like when you push yourself into some area where you are kind of more of an amateur or even a complete, um, you know, in, you know, a complete, uh, uh, you know, potential failure at, you know, that's right. when you sort of like, well, you don't even know you're taking the risk because you sort of like don't know there's a right or right, right or wrong way to do it. Right. It, it's the, the, uh, the brilliance of, of being, uh, completely, uh, not knowledgeable in something is exactly, is like yeah, exactly you don't yeah. know what the mistakes are, um, yep, that you yep. could be making. Um, and, so you, you built up this portfolio of stuff and, and did you use that to sort of start thinking about what colleges you were going to go to? Yeah. Then I, and again, this is all like back before the internet. So right. I went to, uh, um, our, our giant suburban high school had, I think just one lady who was like the college counselor. And I said, I wanted to study graphic design in Ohio or one of the States that touches Ohio at a university, not an art school. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was also, I was a good student and I liked other subjects too. And I yeah. sort of, you didn't want to put really, all, I, all go all in on, on art. You wanted to. Yeah. And I sort of, I, I sort of didn't want to just, um, and also I wasn't even sure I, I, I wasn't even, even then I kind of sensed that what I was good at wasn't art per se, but it was right. more just, you know, um, being able to, you know, here's some guys, talk about what the idea was for the, you know, the end of the year Glee Club show and think, oh, based on that, this poster, this would make a clever poster for that. You know, and that sort of requires artistic ability, I suppose, but it's not actually like making art. And so I thought if I could go someplace where you get exposed to a lot of different things, not just uh, uh, four straight years of art, that'd be better. So I ended up going to the University of Cincinnati, Mm -hmm. state school, other end of the state from where I lived. 
And I got a really, really good education, learned all those rules that I was completely unaware of, (laughs) had to kind of confront sort of like the next crisis you have with, you know, once you actually, I think you put it well, Tom, when you don't know the rules, you're able to actually behave in this kind of instinctively uh, free way. Mm -hmm. And then I think once you learn there are these rules that exist, you, you know, some people, and I was definitely one of those people, just tend to get really like obsessed with the rules. Like I, right. I need to know all the rules now and I need to follow all the rules. And so, uh, uh, you know, you, you, there's a real danger of kind of overreacting once you kind of find out what the guidelines are. And I probably swung back and forth over and over again between those two poles yeah. between not caring and being overly obsessed. And what were some of the, what were some of the pitfalls of, of suddenly being obsessed with all the rules? Was it? Um, well, you sort of had a, um, um, you know, you, uh, you sort of get in this uh, um, situation where instead of starting with a blank piece of paper and sort of discovering in the moment what, you know, what the solution might be, you start having an image, a standard in your mind of the way something is, is supposed to look to be legitimate. Right. And, uh, and also because I was, uh, as I said before, I was like kind of a very enthusiastic mimic i kind of you know every time i would see something that i liked or learn about a new you know designer from history who had a style that i thought was really exciting like all my work would look like that for the next you know a few weeks or so you know i just kind of would be i was very very uh prone to infection in a way and uh um you know sort of I, i you know i guess the best thing that can happen is you build up a certain amount of immunity it makes you kind of suspicious at the end of the day of style alone as a motivating thing, which I'm not sure is actually a a fully earned suspicion. I think that style alone actually is, can be meaningful and can actually perform, um, you know, real tasks in the communication process. But I think, you know, kind of cycling between all these styles as I did when I was in high school, then college kind of, uh, uh, in a way just made me sort of a little bit convinced there had to be something, you know, beyond that, uh, that would be more interesting and sustaining professionally. Right. That connects to, to one of your, um, one of your essays I was reading, um, about the curse of knowledge. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, that one, so, yeah. but uh, oh, yeah, sort of, yeah, I just happened to look at that for a reason. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the idea that when you know, uh, I think you talked about that. Well, you should talk about it, but the, the yeah, talk about the curse it, of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, um, it's a, it's, it's a, um, I think it was a, a Harvard business school, uh, writer kind of called it that, but it's based on the, uh, the, the, the proven psychological, um, uh, characteristic that one, if you know something, it's you tend to underestimate how hard it is to learn or you tend to forget what it was like not to know that thing. Mm. And I think in advertising design, any one of the professions where you're trying to persuade someone to, you know, buy something, believe something, agree with something, whatever, um, you know, your clients are true believers. They, you know, uh, they're convinced that their product is the best thing in the world or their candidate is the best person for the job or mm-hmm. that their idea is the thing that everyone should agree with. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you can come to agree with them, too. And in fact, it's, you know, it's certainly more effective for you as a designer if you are an enthusiastic user of the product or believer in the 
uh, in the ideas that your client's espousing, right? That seems obvious. Mm-hmm. But I think with that agreement comes the danger that you sort of forget what it was like not to know all that mm-hmm. stuff. And you start kind of like partaking of the, uh, you know, the inside insider language. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think uh, your real, your, you know, your real responsibility is to the people out in the world you're trying to convince and reminding yourself that most of the world goes along happily, not caring at all about this thing that suddenly you're so interested in, you know? Mm. And I think um, the, the the curse of knowledge, as it's referred to in this uh, uh, piece that I read, is that, um, you know, y- like you literally can't, you know, you're, you're so... Uh, uh, um, in a way, deformed by the fact that you already know this thing, that mm. you can't even explain it in terms that would make it under uh, that would make it co- comprehensible to someone who didn't know it already. Right. And it sort of sounds weird when you put it that way, but they, there's this interesting experiment that has to do with uh, uh, kind of knocking out the rhythm to a song like "Happy Birthday" or "Mary Had a Little Lamb on a Table," and it just sounds like it couldn't be any other song than that if you're the one kind of tapping the table. Right. And, but someone listening to it has zero chance of being able to decipher it. There's almost like no way they can tell what song you're wow. you're tapping out, like in Morse code, along with the rhythms of the words, you know? Yeah. And then, then of course, when you hear it, you can't unhear it. You know immediately what it is. Yeah, and yeah. That, that tends to, and, that, and that's like really, um, uh, that's stood true in all sorts of different ways. So yeah. it's, uh, um, and, it, it's, it's, and it's oddly fundamental to... Uh, to what I think people who do design and advertising deal with every day. You know, we're putting messages out in the world. We have no idea who the recipients are. Yeah. Uh, we should just assume that they're not necessarily going to be fully attentive or yeah. um, inclined to agree with or believe or even notice the thing we're trying to say. Yeah. And yet it's just so hard to remember what it's like not to care at all about it, you know? How do you, how do you check yourself when, when that's going on? Do you, do you show it to people? Do you... Uh... I know in your in your article you talked about this uh, Thomas Pynchon. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, thing my partner been, did. Yeah, yeah, written in the Times, and and he had spelled out Pynchon and acrobats, which I did I did see, but only after I saw that it was Pynchon. No, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I was trying to read it because I know uh, yeah. I, I know the I, I guess I have a little bit of knowledge that like people often do that with acrobatic figures, make yeah. make letter forms. So I was like, what letters are those? But it was hard to read. And I think that was part of the idea. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I like that the editor had shown it. He didn't read it at first and had to call and say, what is this about? And then he showed it to his friends at the paper and they all saw it immediately. And he was like, oh, okay, I guess I'm is that is that a good way to, to check yourself? Yeah, Kinda... yeah it, it, it can be. And then also with some um... One of the things that's an interesting element of all this is sometimes, uh, unless you're designing fire exit signs in a, you know, in an office building, mm. um, the message you're trying to communicate doesn't necessarily have to be delivered immediately. And there's, you know, there's some pleasure in having, um, you know, the recipient kind of have to have to do not a little work necessarily, but have, have the pleasure of discovery when they sort of see it. Right. Uh, you know, and, you know, and I think that that sort of is, uh, um, you know, that turns you from someone just passively receiving a message to someone who's more actively participating in yeah. the reception of it. Right. It feels and, more personal. Uh, it feels more personal. It's probably more memorable. It's something that you end up kind of, uh, uh, you know, having had had a hand in constructing in your own mind, you're mm. sort of more likely to uh, uh, to kind of 
you know, um, identify with it a little more strongly perhaps. Yeah. So, um, and certainly, you know, I mean, um, in that case, uh, yeah, my partner Abbott Miller was doing an illustration for book review about Thomas Pynchon, book mm-hmm. by Thomas Pynchon, and Pynchon is uh, is not a easy beach read necessarily. You have to <laughs> do a little bit of work to appreciate his, uh, yes. you know, his novels. And I think um, you know it was a nice match between subject and uh, yeah. and design. Yeah. So you're learning all these rules in college. Were, were there rules that you were just like, well, that's just, I'm not going to follow that rule. And, no, uh, I loved all the rules. You I did. Very credulous. I mean, yeah. Uh, you're a good, well, you know, you're I, a good I hypnotist. Uh, uh, subject. Yeah. I, I mean, I swear, I can't think of any rules I ever heard that I wasn't fascinated by. Right. Uh, sometimes I sort of like realize that they, you know, they only have a certain utility. Right. Um, you know, and sometimes you realize that, um, uh, the very existence of the rule creates this real fertile opportunity to undermine the rule because right. it sort of is setting up the status quo uh, uh, to which you're, you know, that you can respond to with something contrasting, let's say. Right. But, yeah, breaking uh, the rule but, makes the rule yeah, yeah. that much more. Yeah, exactly. You know, th- these are all pretty obvious things that I think people learn. But I, uh, yeah. but I have to admit, I just always just, uh, when I think about it, I just like, uh, um, when I find out that there are, you know, customs for, you know, there's certain things that architects do when they're doing buildings or certain things that, uh, you know, that, that, that people know about riding horses or people know about planting gardens, these things like really, they're just really fascinating to me. Yeah. And a lot of times they're, um, you know, what's interesting about, again, about what we do is that, um, you know, if you're talking about planting a garden, uh, you know, you know, part of what you're doing is you're working with nature and nature doesn't care that much about what you're doing in theory. Right. right? So there's, there's an optimal way to do it in a suboptimal way. And gardeners over the centuries have kind of sorted this out. Right. When it comes to the, the, the quote unquote rules that define say visual communication, a lot of it just has to do with, you know, people, you know, people in a society sort of agreeing collectively that, yeah, this is how this sort of thing is going to look, you know, that an ad is 30 seconds. Yeah. An ad is 30 seconds. If it seems too long, it seems weird. It's like, you know, if you're designing, um, I haven't designed that many book covers, but I've worked with some, I've done a few and I've worked with some very experienced book cover designers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I've, I've been in classes to watch really good book cover designers, like, teach the art of it and sort of in the, in the, in the, the practice of it. And, you know, the way that they can talk with authority about, you know, you need to signal, there's certain signals to people that this is a biography versus a novel. There are certain ways to signal this is a historical book versus a, uh, uh, this is a book of history rather than a work of fiction. Mm. And, you know, and you can sort of say, well, why should these rules exist? Screw them all. It's fun to break the rules. Yeah. But on the other hand, you're actually packaging content for people who are, you know, trying to figure out what to consume next. And right. you, you do them a certain favor if they're looking for a novel, having novels that look like novels actually is helpful. If they're looking for a biography, having having the biographies look like biographies is kind of makes them more predisposed to find the biography you're attempting to sell them. Right. right. So, so you're, that, so you're and, and having so, a conversation with <clears throat> your subject and, and Yeah, and, 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 and you're kind of relying on the fact that you and the other book cover designers have habituated the book re, book buying public mm. to expect certain things in certain situations. Now, that same habituation which applies 
to all kinds of different things. I mean, it sort of is, you know, defines the field of play for user experience designers and interaction mm-hmm. designers in the digital world, let's say. What do people right. click on? What do they expect to have happen when they click on things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that kind of habituation, it isn't, sometimes it's not really based on anything, you know, objective or absolute. It's just based on, you know, a popular thing worked that way. And yeah. so now more popular things will work that way. Some coder made while, all the, yeah, all yeah. the links blue with yeah. an underline underneath them. And now that's yeah, yeah. what we come to know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, so there's that. nothing, nothing inherent about that necessarily, uh, but it sort of is what we've all kind of tacitly agreed is what the thing's going to be. So sometimes these rules really aren't rules at all, but it's just a uh, uh, a convenience so we can all kind of communicate with each other. Right. Uh, and then and then again, each of those conveniences kind of uh, are both a um, you know uh, present an opportunity to kind of play along with them or mm-hmm. an opportunity to play against them if you sort of do it carefully and you're trying to signal something different. So, But it's important that you know them so that you don't make some other communication that you didn't realize you were. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, were making. Yeah. And, and it's funny because it's uh, um, you in a way, some of the things you learn in school are, you know, in school where you're just kind of learning the first steps of your craft. A lot of the stuff you're learning are just the most rudimentary things. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, some of these other things are just so much more, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're more subtle and they're more, they're, they're vaguer in a way, uh, but they are sort of important. You know, there's like, yeah. uh, designing a logo for, uh, a really big company. You know, there's certain logos I've done where I sort of like thought they were really good, but they were for a company. They made the company look like a startup and it wasn't a startup and right. couldn't convincibly be a startup. Mm. You know, it just was like a little bit too clever and kind of small scale mm-hmm. and you need a big company can kind of look you know, it's, you know, needs to look bigger in a way or right. deserves to look bigger. So it's, 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 and it's like, it's funny, the more, uh, uh, kind of the more, the more subtle these rules get, the harder it is to articulate exactly what they are. Unless yeah. you're just going to write parodies of them, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. And it strikes me that it's, uh, those rules are just another way of, of sort of getting an assignment from, you know, the, the, yeah, 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 the yeah. collective yeah, it helps the, cloud. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Yep. Um, and, uh, so that's cool that you learned all this. So, uh, at the university of Cincinnati, were you, um, were there teachers that, that, uh, sort of inspired you? Were there, what did you, how did you get to, I want to, you know, from like, oh, I want a a big liberal education to like, okay, now graphic design is going to be my thing. Well, it was. Oh, I, I knew all along I wanted to study graphic design. I, yeah. I, I enjoyed being in the context of a big urban university because there's mm. all kinds of stuff going on there. Right, They're right. great, you know, that has a, a great music school. It has a, you know, serious law school. It has a, a good business school. You know, it's got a lot of other things, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a nice medium-sized city that's kind of pleasant to work in. Yeah. I had great professors who had been really well-trained at, you know, places like Yale and, uh, um, you know, the, the, the Kunstkaverberschule in Basel, Switzerland. And so they were yeah. really uh, uh, teaching at that moment in time, in the 70s, high modernism, a lot of Helvetica, a lot of grids, <laughs> a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, geometry. Yeah. Uh, and so, again, those were, um, that was a very boot campy sort of experience where mm-hmm. you kind of were really getting into uh, 
um, um, you know, the world of, you know, again, a whole different set of rules about just how, how type, uh, you know, how, how letters become typefaces, how typefaces kind of give character to messages, mm. uh, about how, you know, how, if you're working with a printed page, how the scale of what you're putting in that page and the position affected the way the, uh, the page looked and behaved. All those things were just kind of revelations to me. Right. But you end up going to New York City. Uh, was that something you always aspired to do? Yeah, I always wanted to come to New York. If I visited New York on a high school field trip, and I knew that was the place for me. Really? New York. Yeah. Oh, yeah and yeah. because it was the the sort of the hub of design, or because you just loved the city? I just loved everything about it. I loved the uh, it was the hub of design. It was uh, uh, it was the um, uh, it, it just seemed like exciting and dangerous and. You know, stuff was happening there all the time. Yeah. You know, if you come from Ohio, uh, well, there, there's pleasures to be in a place where nothing is happening, where, where less is happening. You know, yeah. it's like, a, you know, um, people don't live in New York for a lot of good reasons. People leave New York for a lot of good reasons. But I remember in uh, in the 70s, it just seemed like, oh, man, this is like where all the energy is, where everything's happening. Yeah. You know, I, I, I loved everything about it. And this is the 70s, mind you. And, yeah. Uh, um, taxi you know, driver in New York City. T- taxi driver. It was, it was totally taxi driver in New York, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, I still thought it was really cool and great. So I moved uh, here in 1980. I happened to get really lucky and get a fantastic job uh, uh, for my first job out of school. How did you and, do that? Uh, well, how did you get that fantastic job? This is Vignelli Vin- Associates. Yeah, Massimo, yeah, yeah. I got it. I, um, I knew – I did an internship with a guy who knew a guy who worked at uh, – Massimo Vignelli studio and uh-huh. Massimo Vignelli for our listeners uh, yeah. was a, uh, you know, one of the great designers of the 20th century, great graphic designers did everything from the signage system to the New York for the New York subway system, to mm-hmm. the logo for Bloomingdale's, uh, both of which are still visible, still, still visible uh, very, very readable. <laughs> yep. And, um, uh, and had a very, sophisticated, worldly, interesting practice. I, uh, um, I, my, my friend of a friend, um, uh, I just wanted, I had, I had like my portfolio with me on a visit to New York and it was like a big physical portfolio, yeah. like big, it's the, only way. Rat, it's fake, the only way back fake then. leather, fake leather case, plastic sheets, uh, between spirals and, um, a big zipper all the way around it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I dropped it off there and, um, Massimo must have been in a good mood. I sort of, you know, the, the training I had was the kind of training he liked. I also very specifically and very inadvertently did a, had a kind of way of sketching my projects as I was planning them that was very similar to the way he did his sketches. I didn't I had no idea of that at the time. But right. Looking back, that was something that he saw that he thought was nice. What, and, was, uh, what was that so, way of sketching? Sorry, I'm I, I just kidding. Oh, Massimo would do, um, um, particularly if he was laying out a book, he would use a fairly soft pencil and basically working at half scale or even sometimes quarter scale would draw every page of the book showing the position of the photographs, the content of the photographs, and the way it would be cropped sort of, and the way all the typography would get laid out. Wow. And um, uh, and I saw him do that again and again and again. And he, you could actually take those sketches and basically lay out the entire book based on the sketches with right. almost 
with with absolute fidelity. And now my sketches were nowhere near as um, you know as accomplished, but yeah. I was without without knowing it, I kind of was sort of aspiring towards the same sort of thing. And he and Massimo liked people who aspired to copy him. He yeah. sort of like appreciated that. He, he didn't was, know you weren't copying him. He, no, no, no. He and he would, and he would have been very happy if I was copying him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, um, uh, but so um, he offered me a job uh, upon graduation, and I started there, and I worked there for ten years. Wow! So that must have been huge. Yeah, yeah, it was really huge. It's, uh, well, again, one of those life changing things to have a. Uh, um, to have a really great mentor, him and yeah. Layla Vignelli, his wife, were both great mentors to me. Yeah. Uh, the experiences I had in that studio with uh, you know people I worked side by side with, and the uh, um, the members of the international design community that would use that as a way station when they were visiting New York. Yeah, it was just a great window on the world. And again, they were both uh, um, they were both Italian immigrants. They'd grown up and been trained in Italy and moved to the United States in the late fifties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, because of that, they were very worldly as, as worldly as I was provincial. And so, um, when I started there, you know, as a, some, you know, a young 20 something who had never been to Europe, yeah, you know, been to Canada once, I think, never been to California. <laughs> International. You know, never, never, yeah, yeah, never been west of the Mississippi, you know, been to Miami Beach once with yeah. my family, you know, hardly been anywhere. And they had been around the world a million times. And yeah. So it was, in, it was a, an opportunity, which I recommend to every, everyone, if they can, to use each of your jobs as a way to continue your education. And that was yeah. a great graduate school, in effect. That's smart advice. Now, you, uh, I read that you would, would, uh, it says, it says, uh, after tucking your wife into bed, you would, uh, go back to the office from 10 PM to 3 AM and, and keep working. Um, yeah. And again, I said, now I, I look at that advice, you know, that, that account of my life with some, uh, with mixed feelings now because, yeah. um, uh, workaholism and, yeah. you know, do you think you were a workaholic? Not yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't, it was just, I loved God, I just love doing design. I just love doing it so much. Yeah. And um, we had this very, very claustrophobic apartment that was extremely near my office, uh, <laughs> uh, which was then um, in the East 60s in Manhattan. Yeah. My wife had a corporate job down on Wall Street. She started much earlier than me. She started like be- like uh, before 9 o'clock. She might have started at 8.30 or 8. Yeah. Uh, she worked for a bank down on Wall Street. I um, didn't start till 9.30. Uh, I'm a, I'm a guy and I was like, not particularly a, a guy who cared that much about grooming in those days. So I would just, uh, <laughs> well, it was roll 80, out of bed. early eighties. Yeah. It was the early eighties. I would yeah. roll out of bed and like, uh, uh, you know, at 20 after nine or so, and I could still be in the office at a respectable nine thirty-five, nine forty-five. Yeah. She would have to get up at like before six o'clock to kind of get ready to make the trek down to, uh, the world trade center. Yeah. And, um, uh, and so she would literally be getting up, you know, three and a half hours earlier than me every morning. Yeah. I would, I come home to this little apartment. We'd have dinner together, watch TV a little bit. She'd fall asleep and I'd still be raring to go. Yeah. And after a while, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to go back to the office, which was just like literally three blocks away. Yeah. I had a key. I just would go in there and I just would work. I'd work. I'd do, you know, I'd do, I'd get caught up on the things I was doing during the day. Yeah. I would do um, freebies for my friends. I would do little freelance jobs for 
people that needed them. I just ended up, you know, and so that gave me yeah. a lot of extra rehearsal time, I think, yeah. that made me, at the end of the day, a better designer. I designed a lot of, again, I got a lot of junky things out of my system and uh, ended up, you know, I, I think those extra hours I put in really made me a better designer in a yeah. way. I needed extra hours to be a better designer. Yeah. What what did you learn in that first job that um, that you didn't at at Cincinnati? <clears throat> oh, I think I learned that um, um, a couple of things. I think I learned that uh, um, that details were. Re- I mean, Vignelli had an amazing attention to detail. It was a very craft based uh, studio where everything had to be just perfect. But he sort of, but I noticed by sort of seeing how projects went from conception to completion that the best projects weren't ones that required where they were made by the details. They were the best, the ones that I found most exciting were ones where there just was a big compelling idea at the beginning and it, it would have worked in a bunch, it would have worked in a number of typefaces. It would have worked in a, in a number of colors. It would have worked even if it was you know, uh, a rectangle instead of a square. There was just something so compelling about the basic idea that it worked, right? Right. And um, and that's just, so I think it was simultaneously kind of mastering just the skill and, you know, old-fashioned hand-eye coordination on one hand, mm. but also kind of understanding that, you know, what matters in a, in a, if you're laying out a book is the pace and the scale and mm. that every all the details kind of make the book satisfying and readable. But what you really want is sort of the experience of the reader who's turning the pages to sort of like be both, you know, to feel that they're caught up in a swiftly moving river on one hand, but to have surprises arrive at just the right moment. So as they're anticipating one more of the same, you give them something totally different before you return to something that's more reassuring. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and he was great at laying out books. He was great at, um, you know, uh, talking to a client, uh, um, all those things that sort of like are the difference between just doing an exercise, an abstract exercise on your desk and actually working in the real world. Mosmo right. was really good at all those things. And selling things as well. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, uh, I know we're, we're, we're kind of, uh, getting up to, uh, we have a, a, a bunch more minutes together, but, uh, I wanted to get to your, your current job, um, at Pentagram. How, what happened in between? Did you leave Vignelli to go to Pentagram? Yep. Yeah. I, um, I worked, uh, you know, I worked at, um, Vignelli for 10 years. Yeah. Um, I kind of worked past the, I drove past the normal exit ramp for opening your own studio, which requires a certain amount of youthful hubris. (laughs) Um, and, um, I sort of, I got, you had the curse of knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Exactly. I, I got used to the idea of, I got working in a, with, working around people and right. sort of the idea of kind of going off on my own and just sort of, you know, having no one to talk to or hiring one assistant and having to bother them all day long just seemed kind of vaguely depressing to me. Yeah. Um, yet I sort of did, you know, the one thing about Vignelli and rules is he's famous for rules and mm-hmm. kind of one of the things that I thought was fun working for him was just kind of, um, you know, following and working around and, um, you know, sort of playing with the rules that he had set up, which he he sometimes just tolerated, but often was delighted by. If he sort of like 
took something that was a typical Vignelli thing and figured out a new way to do it. He found that really interesting. Um, and, but like people did, you notice how I said that people came yeah. there because they wanted a Vignelli kind of thing. Right, right. And, uh, so I found myself thinking, boy, if there was only a place where I could have, you know, independence and, uh, control over my own fate and my own work, not have to do it in reference to any prescribed approach, yeah. uh, but still have a community of people who I could be inspired by, who I could look to for advice, who I could be to for support and in turn support and hopefully inspire them, you know, if only I could have that. And then um, I, w- I knew some people who worked at Pentagram. The way Pentagram is set up, it's a partnership. Every one of the partners uh, basically runs what amounts to an independent small studio within the overall Pentagram structure. And um, uh, Woody Pirtle, who was the partner that I knew best there, said they were interested in expanding a little bit. And when I'd be uh, open to the idea of coming in as a partner. And I was very surprised by that first, but then yeah. it just seemed like an irresistible invitation. And that at this point was, uh, uh, a little bit more than, uh, uh, just a little short of 29 years ago that we had that conversation. Wow. So I joined there in, uh, November of uh, 1990, and I've been here ever since. Wow. And was that because you had done something in particular that people uh, saw um, at Vignelli? Or was that um, just a general? Um, I think, uh, well, I mean, like I said, I, like uh, that observation you made, you made about me that I, that I sort of never quite, I, I have to hand it to time. I never thought, I never actually wondered, like, uh, you know, what gave me the, balls to walk downstairs and just say, Hey, let me design all this stuff. But I kind of was like that all along in a way. And so in my 10 years of Vignelli, I was both, uh, I think a good employee for Massimo Vignelli and learned a lot about design done at that scale and at that level. But I also, you know, I I volunteered for tons of stuff. I was involved in a lot of professional organizations. If someone said, who wants to design this, thing of a jig, I would say, I'll do it. And no questions asked. I just really yeah. always had my hand up. I was like eager to do stuff. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I, I wasn't doing it to be noticed. I, I wasn't like trying to audition for a partnership at Pentagram or anything else. I just was doing it because, you know, I couldn't believe that, that I could you get could. a shot at doing anything. And all of a sudden there it was, you know? Yeah. And so he, you know, we, we had worked together on a couple of, uh, uh, professional committees like for AIGA and stuff like that. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, we had judged a couple of competitions side by side and I'd met a couple of the other partners of Pentagram as well. Yeah. Paula Scher, uh, Paula yeah, we, Scher, we who, had uh, her on the show as yeah, well. Who, yeah. I know who was a guest on this show, uh, earlier, yeah. uh, who was a guest on the podcast earlier. Uh, she, uh, uh, she had a similar conversation with, uh, uh, with Pentagram about the same time as me, and we both effectively joined at the same time. Oh, wow. I came in in no- yeah, I came in in November 1990. She came in in April 1991. Um, but um, uh, and we're both still here. So yeah, and I yeah, can see her so right now be... from where I am. Actually, so, what's that? I can see her right now from where I'm. Sitting. Oh, say hi for us. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so you have done some amazing things uh, at 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 Pentagram, uh, not least of which. Uh, is the Hillary logo from uh, mm-hmm. 2016? Yeah, yeah. uh, my condolences because uh, I voted for her. Um, Thank you, appreciate yeah. it. She got more votes in general. Actually, it worked so on me. Yes, she support. did. She did yeah. get more votes than Donald Trump. Yeah. I just want to say that again. Yeah. Um, the uh, the how did you get that gig? 
Is that, um, is that a similar thing where you're just like, I'll do it? Yeah, well, yes. I'm uh, sure there were a lot of people that said that, though. Um, yeah, to first be asked, I suppose. But um, I think <laughs> uh, there was a – I mean, like, I, I, you know, I know the people who asked me, and I've never – you know, I suppose – I'm, I'm You want to ask why. Yeah, I'm scared to hear the, the answer. Even in the aftermath, I wouldn't say whatever possessed you to hire me anyway. <laughs> um, but there was a, um, um, a woman who then was uh, – um, head of a uh, marketing head at Coca-Cola and now is uh, head at YNR named Wendy Clark, mm-hmm. a, uh, a guy who was a early um, part of the campaign for Hillary named Teddy Goff. Mm-hmm. The two of them, I think, went around and visited a bunch of designers in early 2015. Um, they visited me. They talked about me. I sort of like, they talked to me I sort of expressed my interest in it. It was a volunteer project. Uh, it was going to be a top secret one where, you know, in theory, you weren't doing it for money or glory, uh, but you just would do it for, um, uh, you know, for just, you know, a way of making a contribution to, yeah. you know, the United States of America, Yes, which I did really happily. I was, uh, you know, as a New Yorker, I had a uh, uh, Secretary, Secretary Clinton was my senator, and mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, and I was um, as a baby boomer. I think I, uh, uh, you know, I, I'd gone through the '90s with uh, Bill Clinton as president, yeah. and uh, and I think I was, you know, uh, I was always impressed with her as first lady, and certainly, uh, um, you know, the campaign of uh, uh, in '08 uh, that was hard fought with Barack Obama, and yeah. she became Secretary of State. I thought all that was like really impressive, and I thought, well, finally, here is someone who just seems to. You know, be perfectly suited in every way to be president of the United States. And I was really happy and excited to have an opportunity to make a contribution. And this was sort of at a a moment when, um, you know, like I didn't, weirdly, it seems strange to say this now, but uh, like when we did that work, again, it was sort of like I, I, I assumed that if they used the work that we did, that I'd get the satisfaction of knowing I had helped, but I never, I like never, I wasn't picturing anyone ever knowing that I had done it. Like who right. cares who does, you know, like since when does it matter who does, who's the designer is of logos for presidential candidates. I suppose yeah. with Barack Obama had established a precedent with Saul Sender and his team having done that. Right. Oh, with the uh, sunrise and the, and the curved lines in it. Mm-hmm. But I sort of wasn't thinking, Ooh, glory. I was just thinking, <laughs> you know, the chance to kind of participate in a way that I can, Take my skills. Uh, do useful, what I do, know? but uh, for the for the country. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What What are some of your your favorite things that you've done at Pentagram that that people can uh, can check out and and maybe tell a story or two about about a couple of them? Well, I mean, I, I mean that that adventure actually. Um, what you know that particular one with uh, working for Secretary Clinton to go from you know, a sketch in my notebook of an H with an arrow in it to a year later watching on television, the democratic, you know, national convention with, you know, thousands of people holding that symbol, you know, on signs above their head and cheering, seeing a stage with that shape and, you know, sort of seeing how uh, uh, Jennifer Kine and her team in Brooklyn rolled that whole thing out was just sort of amazing. So I think a lot of times, you know, it's, it's really funny. There was a moment in, you know, back in 1970, 72, 74, maybe 1972, mm-hmm. um, one of the first projects I did in high school that got mass produced was a poster for a play we were putting on. And I still remember 
what it was like to come into school the morning that the poster was printed and mm. the drama club had hung it up in the hallway. Yeah. You know, I had sort of like up till that moment in time, every time I did a drawing or a painting or a piece of artwork, it would be me and some room and it would, you know, if at best it would just be hung up on a bulletin board or put in a display case, you know? Right, right. And instead, you know, it was on in every hallway, every stairwell. It was like everywhere. Yeah. And it was unsigned. People didn't know I did it. But I, like every time I saw it, I thought, shoot, you know, I did yeah. that. I was like, it was just, I mean, in, in a way, it's very, it's simultaneously egomaniacal and right. anonymous, curiously. Cause yeah. like, so, you know, and so like, you know, I did, I, you know, I remember the first time after I redesigned all the shopping bags and packaging for Saks Fifth Avenue. Yeah, it's beautiful uh, stuff. Being in a restaurant when some lady, I was in a restaurant with my wife and some lady walked in carrying one of the bags I had designed and I almost like <laughs> turned the table over and Dorothy <laughs> said, what, my wife said, what, what's wrong? I said, uh, I, I choked up like that woman's got my shopping bag. <laughs> right? And I'd she's holding seen, it wrong. Yeah, I, no, I'd never <laughs> seen a normal person holding that bag. And the only time I'd ever seen it was like, in presentations to the right. marketing people at Saks and then on, you know, yeah. like the idea that it actually existed in the world. In and this world. One of the, you know, it, and what was exciting was this, for this woman, it was just like part of her life. She didn't care. Yeah. You know, it no, wasn't it's a like, symbol like, though. Well, it's also a yeah, symbol. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. So I think one of the satisfying things is, you know, to, um, uh, to, um, to do work that actually just becomes part of people's life in a way that part of people's lives in a way that they're unconscious of that ideally it makes them happier or more productive or it adds a little bit of joy and brightness to whatever it is they're doing. Yeah. But they're not really thinking, you know, gee, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Pentagram. (laughs) Thank you, graphic designers everywhere for this beautiful moment. They don't care. They have other things to worry about. Yeah. But the idea that you're able to participate like that is just like really, it's, it's the coolest thing in the world. It really is. It just is great. To be a part of of culture. Well, not often, but every once in a while I get to know how that is. Um, but you, you also give back in, uh, I, I just, you're in researching this episode, uh, your essays and your writing and your design observer website, um, all such great tools and resources for people, um, to, so it's designobserver.com. Is that where people go? Oh yeah, they can do that or they can come to, um, um, uh, pentagram.com. Yeah. Uh, we see a lot of work then. I have the most brilliant, uh, partners in the world here, all yeah. of whom are, um, as inspiring to me as I could have ever dreamed. Yeah. Um, then, um, um, you know, you can fo- follow me on Twitter at, um, oh, hang on. I just use it to yell at the president. I don't, I don't do anything else. On <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, for some reason, I sort of have uh, managed to uh, not be particularly political on Twitter. Yeah, I just kind of, like, I've made the mistake. Do, uh, of, of every, not every, doing I do that. subtle subtle digs every now and then, and sometimes when I can't take it anymore. My opinions are my own, though, Michael. My opinions are my yeah. own. They are as, not. They as, are as not are mine, as are mine. So that's at Michael Beirut. That's uh, Michael B I E R U T. No space or anything. That's yeah. Twitter, and then um, I think uh, Instagram is M Beirut B I E R U T. Yeah. Um, but, um, um, so, uh, and you post a lot of um, inspirational stuff and, and, uh, yeah, I, you, I know that, you. uh, as a non-designer myself, it's, it's really accessible as well. Um, and you, yeah, really... thank you. And I, I mean, one of the things that I like best about, uh, graphic design is that it's when it's done well, it's, uh, um, it's not really a, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not an elitist activity. It's right. not a, uh, 
um, it's, it's meant to be, it's meant to be accessible. It's meant right. to be inspiring. It's meant to be, you know, art that kind of fits into everyday life. And yeah. I think, um, um, having grown up in the Midwest to parents who, uh, um, you know, who, who were always great supporters of me and great cheerleaders for me, but yeah. not necessarily, um, you know, it's particularly my mom who I don't think ever quite understood what the Dickens I was going <laughs> now, on. What about. did you do? Uh, did you take that picture? No, no, oh, yeah, no believe me. Yeah, believe me. We had, we, <laughs> she didn't even bother having that conversation for like the last 25 years of her life with me. She <laughs> knew how it ended, you know, with her just sort of thinking I was just, you know, screwing around with her or something. Uh, but, um, uh, uh, but I think, um, you know, I always, uh, when I do this work, I, a lot of times I think, okay, what, you know, what would someone like my mom make of this? You know, yeah. so, yeah, um, that's, that's, an that's what makes it fun thing to yeah. think about. Um, yeah. And uh, so they can follow you on Twitter. We got your website. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? And, and I'm just a bad interviewer. No, no, no. You're a great okay. interview. Thank you so much. This is a fun conversation. I appreciate it. Awesome. This was this was fun for us, too. Uh, and uh, thank you so much for being on. Real pleasure. Real pleasure. Good luck. So that was my interview with Michael Beirut. Before the interview, I went to his website, Design Observer, and I'm just floored by all the design thinking and and just general uh, really, really good writing and, and, and thoughts uh, there. So I will be a frequent visitor to that. They also have a uh, podcast, I believe. So I hope you enjoyed that. This has been The A-List, brought to you by Ad House Advertising School. I'm Tom Chrisman. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate us and subscribe to the show on iTunes and wherever you listen to podcasts because that's how we get other people listening. Share it with a friend. Share it with that brother-in-law who's like, what do you do again? What's that advertising thing? You know, because maybe his kid wants to get into, you know, we're just here trying to help people. So help us out, will you? It's free. You know what I'm saying? And if you want to be interviewed for an upcoming episode, contact us through adhousenyc.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Mongo Industries. And you can check out DeMassimo Goldstein at digobrands.com, D-I-G-O-B-R-A-N-D-S.com. The A-List is recorded at Gramercy Post in New York City. You can check out their stuff at gramercypost.com. Our engineer was Matt Stillo. Our producer was Casey Valigursky. They're both awesome people. You should know them. They're right there. Look.